We're going to begin. I'm Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College, and I uh, want to thank everyone for coming to our sixth annual observance of Constitution Day here at Goucher. I was just saying to Senator Cardin, we have been very strict in our observance of the federal requirement that we mark the importance of the Constitution. It was man this day was mandated by Congress in 2004, and uh, in theory, under its terms, every educational institution in the United States that receives any federal funds is required to observe the anniversary of the Constitution, which was uh, officially the an official anniversary is September 17th in 1787. So we're three days late, but uh, I think uh, that's within the realm of uh, compliance. Uh, we've had our previous speakers have included, um, and I believe he was our first under Constitution Day, uh, Senator Cardin's predecessor, Senator Paul Sarbanes. We've had members of the State Senate, Jamie Raskin and Richard Maddalino, uh, the former Maryland Secretary of State, Mary Kane, who now happens to be a candidate for Lieutenant Governor, and then William Murphy, who was representing one of the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, talking about constitutional issues there. Senator Cardin is a great friend of Goucher College. He was a member of our Board of Trustees for almost 10 years. And I uh, uh, want to thank him for all that he's done and continues to do. Uh, none of it under the table, all above board and, uh, and very uh, public, uh, in not only for Goucher College, but for independent higher education generally. He is a good friend. Everyone knows who he is, but I'll just say a few things. Um, he was first elected to the Maryland House of Delegates while he was still a student at the University of Maryland Law School. And I think that uh, some of the people in the room, students, might uh, take note of that. Went on to become one of the youngest, youngest speakers of the House, the House of Delegates in Maryland history. Uh, in 1987, he was elected to represent Maryland's third congressional district in the House of Representatives, in the U.S. House, and was reelected to that seat nine times. In 2006, after Senator Sarbanes announced his retirement, uh, he was elected to the Senate, to the U.S. Senate, to succeed Paul Sarbanes, and he serves on the Foreign Relations, Judiciary, Environmental and Public Works, Budget, and Small Business Committees. A few assignments of some significance. The Washington Post has called Senator Cardin a legislator's legislator. He has and has also said that he is sensible, tough-minded, and independent. Uh, he participated in the confirmation hearings for Solicitor General Elena Kagan recently to become an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. And one of the issues that arose during those hearings, among other times, is the question of whether Supreme Court justices have taken too much of an activist approach in terms of judicial review Supreme Court. So today, Senator Cardin will explore how Supreme Court justices interpret the Constitution and congressional statutes by looking at the judicial records specifically of Chief Justice John Roberts and the recently retired Associate Justice John Paul Stevens, whom Elena Kagan is replacing. And after his talk, he'll be happy to take questions. Please join me in welcoming our friend Senator Ben Cardin to Goucher. Sandy, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. 
I think that's the least of what a United States Senator can do since we mandated you have this day is for us to show up. It'd be interesting if all the senators who voted for that would show up on some celebration, but that may be asking too much. It's, it's wonderful to be back here, and uh, Sandy didn't tell you my entire bio, but I do have an honorary degree from Goucher, which I find to be something very, very valuable to me. To, didn't cost me what it cost the students to get a degree, so it's a, but I'm very honored uh, to be associated uh, permanently with, with Goucher, and I enjoyed the years that I served as trustee, and uh, although I don't think everyone here really understood why I left being a trustee, it's because of the Senate rules that make it very difficult for you to serve uh, as a trustee of a private college and still be a member of the United States Senate and vote on all the issues. So. Uh, I miss the board meetings. I know not many people tell you they miss the board meetings, but I do miss the board meetings. I, I think it's a, and I, I know some of your trustees are here and th they do an incredible job uh, working for the future of Goucher and we're just very proud to be associated with you. Uh, I want to get into a discussion today because I, I, I have had a unique opportunity serving in the United States Senate on the Judiciary Committee an opportunity to meet with and then question and then vote on the confirmation of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan to listen to the national debate on activism. Because I believe most Americans believe that the legislature should make the laws and the courts shouldn't make the law. And that judicial activism is, is defined as judicial legislating is something that shouldn't be done. We have enough problems with the legislature. We don't need two legislatures. And when I thought about a subject to talk about here at Goucher, I could have talked about the legislature and what's going on with the Tea Party and all the, the division we have in Congress. I don't, I don't think we've ever had such a partisan division in the United States Congress, which is of great concern to the American people. It's a great concern to me. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that during the question and answer. But I don't think we think about the courts as much as in the Constitution as to the division that has taken place, particularly in the Supreme Court of the United States. And during the confirmation hearings, I tried to first point out to the people of Maryland and the, to, to all Americans, the importance of the Supreme Court of the United States. Their decisions affect our lives every day. On a personal basis, I'm a product of the Baltimore City Public Schools. My first six years in the Baltimore City Public Schools, I was denied my full opportunity because the schools were segregated. And it took a young lawyer from Baltimore, Thurgood Marshall, arguing before the Supreme Court and Brown v. Board of Education to change that. It would not have been changed at that time by the Congress or by our state legislatures. It was the Supreme Court decision and Brown v. Board of Education that opened up our schools. Now, some believe that's judicial activism. We could talk about that. But that was an example of applying the Constitution to current circumstances and giving every American their rightful rights. Separate but equal was not equality. And I think all Americans agree with that today. But in 1954, that was not what most Americans, well, it's not what at least the legislature thought was the right thing to do. So I was personally affected by being denied my full opportunities to attend 
public schools in Baltimore City. And when you look at some of the most significant cases that have been decided by the Supreme Court to advance our rights by applying the Constitution to current circumstances, one determines is, is that activism? Well, did Senator Sessions and Senator Coburn mean that Elena Kagan was going to be a judicial activist using Thurgood Marshall as their example? As you know, she clerked for Thurgood Marshall. And there were many of the members of the United States Senate who thought that Thurgood Marshall was not a good model for a Supreme Court justice to follow because of his judicial activism. So Thurgood Marshall said in a 1987 speech, I do not believe that the meaning of the Constitution was forever fixed at the Philadelphia Convention. To the contrary, the government they devised was defective from the start, requiring several amendments, a civil war, a momentous social transformation to attain the system of constitutional government and its respect for the individual freedoms and human rights we hold as fundamental today. So the question remains, did my colleagues who felt that Elena Kagan would be too much of a judicial activist in the mold of Thurgood Marshall disagree with the evolution of Supreme Court cases that advanced our individual rights against the power of government or special interest? Now, Brown v. Board of Education was one that I think falls in that, in that, uh, in that line of thought. Loving versus Virginia, where the Supreme Court held that laws that denied adults the right to marry whoever they wanted to was unconstitutional. Now, again, there were laws, including a law in Maryland, that made that a criminal offense that was struck down by a Supreme Court decision. Now, if the courts had not done that, and the legislature said not acted, indeed the parents of the President of the United States could not have gotten married in certain states. Supreme Court justices could not have married who they did, including those who are the more conservative members of the Supreme Court. Members of the United States Senate would not have been able to marry the people that they chose in some states. So I think it's well established that what the Supreme Court did in Loving versus Virginia was the right evolution of our Constitution to advance your individual rights. Or Griswold versus Connecticut that upheld the privacy within our own bedrooms of consulting adults. I don't think Americans want our police in our bedroom. So I think the evolution of these cases using the extension of the Constitution to meet the current circumstances is what Americans expect the Supreme Court to do. They expect the court to be active as far as advancing their individual rights against the power of government, the Bill of Rights. So the so-called conservative senators who have deplored judicial activism, who say it's wrong, have supported recent Supreme Court decisions from the so-called conservative justices that I don't understand how they rationalize that with their opposition to judicial activism. So let me talk about some Supreme Court decisions and, and again, I wanna get into this discussion. But there's a common thread on these 
decisions that have recently come from the Supreme Court of the United States. Most have been five to four decisions. They have reversed precedent, which in and of itself is judicial active activism. And in some cases, they legislated from the bench, and they restrict individual rights and they side on the side of either governmental power or special interest corporate power. So let me give you a few examples, and then we can come back and decide whether Chief Justice Roberts is an activist or whether Justice Stevens, who opposed most of those decisions, and whether this really makes a difference or not under our Constitution. Citizens United, there's been a lot of talk about it. There was a editorial in this morning, some paper dealing with the fact that corporations in this election cycle are now aimed at spending a couple hundred million dollars more than they would have spent. Citizens United dealt with corporate spending. The Congress under McCain-Feingold passed a law that restricted what corporations could spend in federal elections and requiring strict reporting so you knew who was doing the spending. There had been previous court decisions, including by the Supreme Court of the United States, that said that corporations are not protected from the point of view of their right of speech under election laws. There was a congressional law, which is not easy to pass. Let me tell you, passing campaign finance reform is not easy in the Congress of the United States. It took many years and the courage of two of our colleagues uh, to, to provide the leadership to break down the partisan differences to get it done. And it allowed corporations to participate, but in a very restricted way. Well, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision just this past year, reversed that. Reversed prior precedent and reversed and found unconstitutional act of Congress, which allowed corporations much more to say in this election cycle. And you'll see the impact. As I said, Supreme Court decisions affect our lives. It affects students. It affects people who want to get married. It affects uh, commerce. It affects your life. Well, you're going to be subjected in this election to maybe not so much in Maryland, but around the nation, to hundreds of millions of dollars of money that you're not going to know where it comes from in an effort to convince you to vote one way or the other for senators and congressmen and governors that otherwise would not have been spent. Let me mention the second case, the Ledbetter case. The Ledbetter case dealt with gender discrimination. Congress passed a law that allowed uh, individuals to file discrimination cases if they believed that they were discriminated in the workforce due to their gender. The law was well established. The, the way in which cases were handled were well established. And it required a person to bring a timely case once they discovered uh, their discrimination. But the Supreme Court said, in a rather unusual interpretation, that unless the individual brought the claim within 180 days of the discrimination, you could not bring the case. It was barred by the statute of limitations. Billy Ledbetter was discriminated against. She found out about it years after the discrimination started. She brought her case immediately after discovering from a coworker that her wages had been discriminated. The Supreme Court threw out this case, saying that she had to bring it within 180 days of when the action occurred, not when she discovered the action, even though it's virtually impossible for a worker to know 
when they're being discriminated against. The case was a, a reverse prior court decisions and reverse congressional intent to provide help for people who are discriminated in the workforce. Once again, a 5-4 decision. In this case, the Congress intervened and has since passed new laws uh, to, to change this, to make sure that cases can be brought in an effective way. Gross v. FBL Financial. This case dealt with age discrimination in the workforce, another 5-4 Supreme Court decision. Another case where the Supreme Court reversed precedent, used a new test that the victim had to use, making it virtually impossible to bring an age discrimination case, siding one more time on the side of corporate America versus individual rights. Exxon versus Baker case involving an oil spill, as we all know, the Exxon Valdez. In this case, the Supreme Court restricted what damages individuals can bring against the oil companies, basically eliminating the punitive, punitive damages. Once again, reversing what was the clear intent of Congress, restricting the rights by another 5-4 decision. The Rapinos case case that I'm very familiar with since I am responsible for the clean water, I, I, I chair the, the Water and Wildlife Subcommittee on the Environmental Public Works Committee. It's not easy to pass environmental laws in Congress. We're trying to get a Chesapeake Bay bill done. It's not easy to get a, a, a bill done. The Clean Water Act was a bill that was carefully negotiated and passed by the Congress in our political system, the legislative branch of government. For decades, the, the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act was well known and documented and what waters it covered. And then the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision again restricted the previous decisions, including decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States, to make it more difficult for the federal government to restrict what private companies can do in the waters of our nation removing many waters that we thought were covered under the Clean Water Act from being covered by the Clean Water Act. Reversing congressional action, reversing prior precedent. In the Legion case, the Supreme Court reversed a long-standing precedent on how price-fixing cases would be handled for consumer protection. Once again, changing the court interpretation of a law making it more difficult for consumers to be able to successfully bring cases against corporations. And then lastly in the Thompson case, and this deals with the criminal section. Here the Supreme Court changed prior interpretations to say that a criminal defendant has to speak up to remain silent. It's hard to understand this one. And I know this is not necessarily an unpopular decision, but it restricts your rights under the Bill of Rights and narrows the protections you have. The framers of our Constitution wanted to put protection in the Constitution because they know that power corrupts, including governmental power. They wanted to restrict those rights. And here we have the Supreme Court, by another 5-4 decision, restricting the rights in the criminal justice system for the individual, giving government more power in the criminal justice system. Not the legislature, 
This is the court. So in each of those cases, Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority. In each of those cases, as you know, the Chief Justice assigns who writes the cases in the majority when he's in the majority. Each of those cases were narrowly decided, usually by 5-4 decisions. And the question is, where were those that opposed judicial activism? Where were my conservative colleagues in the United States Senate on those cases? I haven't heard one of them complain about the role of the Supreme Court in those decisions. Now, if you believe in the separation of the branches of government, if you think the legislature should make the laws of this country, how do you justify supporting those decisions? Well, who is the so-called activist judges? Is it Judge, Judge Justice Stevens or is it Chief Justice Roberts? Justice Stevens wrote, I want to quote this from the minority opinion in the 5-4 decision with, with Citizens United. He wrote, essentially five justices were unhappy with the limited nature of the case before us. So they changed the case, give themselves an opportunity to change the law. There were principled narrow paths that the court that was serious about judicial restraint could have taken. In Citizens United, there was an easy way to solve this case without going into the whole issue of corporate spending. This was a pretty lopsided case, and everyone knew how the outcome was going to be determined. It had to deal with a documentary that was published that didn't really fall into the prohibitions uh, uh, that were in the law. There was a very easy way and to solve this particular issue with documentaries. But the Supreme Court instead decided they wanted to make a statement, more than a statement. They wanted to change the law, and they did. Or let me quote from Chief Justice Roberts during his confirmation hearing, where he said that the role of a justice is like the role of an umpire, to call balls and strikes. Now, I don't agree with that statement. I think judges are important, and they need to, to bring to that court uh, their own world experiences and following judicial principles come to the right conclusions. But I don't think it's as easy as calling balls and strikes. And I don't think Chief Justice Roberts has called balls and strikes. I think he's done a lot more than that. So the real question to me is who is the activist judge? And does it really make a difference? You know, one could determine that an activist judge is a judge who rules a way that you disagree with. So I understand the uh, conservative senators being concerned at the time with Brown v. Board of Education or other cases that advanced individual rights. I think that is not judicial activism. I think that is moving our Constitution forward, Constitution principles, carrying out the true intent of the founders of our Constitution who were very concerned about concentration of power, whether it's in government or whether it's in corporate America. That's not the type of country they wanted for us. That's not the type of democracy they wanted for us. I don't think they envisioned the Supreme Court who would reverse the actions of Congress to take away your rights. And that's what we've seen in recent days. So 
I think we spend a lot of time trying to figure out activism and where it, where it belongs. I just urge us all to be a little bit more straightforward of what, what we mean. One of the reasons I was very pleased to support Elena Kagan particularly, but also uh, Justice Sotomayor, I thought that uh, Justice Sotomayor could stand up to Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia is one of the great justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Probably the brightest and certainly the most articulate and uh, is uh, very uh, articulate on the conservative side. I thought that Justice Sotomayor will be able to stand toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with him, which is, I think, healthy in this, in, in this country, to be able to get balance on the Supreme Court. I also thought it was helpful to get diversity on the court. And with the uh, uh, selection of uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan, uh, we, we now have uh, three women who are in the Supreme Court of the United States. That's not enough. I think you need balance, but you also need to make sure you have uh, the right uh, makeup of the Supreme Court of the United States. I was particularly pleased to support Elena Kagan because I think she understands that we don't want 5-4 decisions on the Supreme Court. We don't want partisan decisions in the Congress of the United States every day of the week. Elections have consequences. They do. They make a difference. Senator Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, said that in supporting Elena Kagan, that elections have consequences. The president's entitled to make an appointment of a qualified person to the Supreme Court of the United States, and he supported Elena Kagan. Elections have consequences in the Congress and whoever's elected. But when the election is over, it's time to get together and to, and to legislate and deal with the problems of this country and not try always to make partisan points. You've got to talk about that in the legislative branch of government. But in the Supreme Court, it's important that we have a, a calmer influence on how the justices are working. And that I, in too many of their cases that they decide to take, remember they only take about 80 cases a year. They don't take a lot of cases. A lot of decisions are made not on the decision itself, but what cases they're going to hear. And I think that we need someone on that court who will bring a greater sense of purpose to the Supreme Court rather than trying to see these 5-4 decisions. I, and I think Elena Kagan is more of a consensus builder, and I think she will be helpful in bringing that about. We'll have to see. These are lifetime appointments. You never know how justice is going to turn out. Justice Stevens, as you all know, was appointed because he was conservative by a Republican president. Turned out to be one of the most progressive members of the Supreme Court. So you never know. But I, I do hope that here on Constitution Day we can talk a little bit about what this Constitution is about. It's not about winning a case before the Supreme Court of the United States on a specific issue that you care about. It's whether the Supreme Court's gonna truly be that independent branch of government that's gonna respect the separation of branches, understand the importance of our Constitution and the rights that are given in the Constitution, but never use the courts to advance their own individual agendas. And I think in recent years, we've gotten away from that principles in the Supreme Court of the United States. And I hope that we'll get back to it and perhaps, just perhaps, Senator Byrd, in requiring you to have this day, Sandy, in this discussion, that in this room there will be a person who will end up on the Supreme Court of the United States and will work to make sure that the principles of our nations are followed by those who serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. Thank you all very much, and now your questions and comments.
we'll settle for only one person in this audience being a member of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Any questions or comments? Then let me ask you one. If, uh, oh, is there one here? Oh, I'm sorry, Dennis, yes. It's a, yeah, the bill is a legislative fix of the, uh, of the Citizen United case. It would, uh, basically the most, most important part, it would require the corporation that's spending money to identify itself in the ad. So you would know where the ad's coming from. That's perhaps the most important part of the legislation. In the, in the House, we had one Republican who joined us. His name is Michael Castle. And we know what happened to Michael Castle. There will be no Republicans joining us in the Senate. None. And we only have 59 Democrats. And you, you need 60 to break the filibuster. We don't have 60 votes. The Republicans believe that this is their ticket to victory in November. They're not going to give this up. They believe that the overwhelming amount of corporate money will be spent on behalf of Republicans versus Democrats. So they see this as an advantage to them. And even Senator McCain, who authored the original bill that said this is horrible that we have corporate money unaccountable in our system, will not support a fix to his own bill. So there is no chance. We may get a vote, but we'll come up short. And there's no chance this will be changed before the elections. I think the American public, though, is going to be fed up on this. And I hope uh, it may very well require a constitutional change, by the way. I'm not a, I've never supported an amendment to the Bill of Rights. I have never. And it, 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 the first amendment I may support, I may, to the Bill of Rights, if it's properly drafted, would be for the Congress to be able to control the amount of money going into our elections. It's, it's obscene. It affects me because I spend so much time raising money. We just, we need to get to a more sensible way to conduct our, our elections in this country. I haven't noticed that. I, I, I don't know. We have a, a hybrid system in Maryland on judges. At the federal level, all judges are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and they have lifetime appointments, lifetime. So uh, it, it, you could argue whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, but I think we like our system at the federal, uh, federal level, and we're not going to change it. At the state level in Maryland, we have a system where our highest judges and our, our, our entry-level judges are appointed and run against their record or just appointed. And it's our circuit court judges, that those who serve in our counties at the trial level, that have to run for election after they're appointed. They run in the status of sitting judges. And in Baltimore County, the four sitting judges had an opponent, and they won. They won, run both as Democrats and Republicans, and they won both primaries. Uh, I wasn't aware that there was an extraordinary amount of money spent. I just don't think judges should run for office. Uh, I don't want my judge to be popular. I want my judge to be uh, the, the give an honest, independent judgment. So I think competitive elections for judges don't make sense. I've always supported eliminating the, the election of judges.
I'm not going to accept that it's infiltrated the Supreme Court. I think that um, I don't question the um, integrity of any of our justices. I know uh, Justice Scalia. He is a very honorable person. He believes very strongly in the opinions that he's authored and his positions. Uh, I don't know Chief Justice Roberts as well, but I know that he is well respected as an as a, as a, as a, a individual. So I'm not going to accept that the Supreme Court's been infiltrated, but I do believe that they have become uh, too much. I just don't like where they're heading. And uh, you've got four justices who are reliable votes on just about every conservative issue that comes before the court. And I, I, I mean, conservative isn't even a good name for it. In every opinion that will limit the uh, ability of Congress to regulate, you have four justices that are pretty reliable to, to move in that direction. Uh, but there's a different climate out here in the public, which is the Tea Party represents it, and it's more anger. People are angry today, and I think the main reason is that if you lost your job or your savings have been cut in half or you, you lost your home, you're not a happy camper. So you're looking for ways to sort of strike out. And uh, there's, I think it's understandable, this national mood. I, I wish it could be channeled into a more constructive way. You can't govern through anarchy. You've got to govern through people who you elect. And when you look at the nominee in Delaware, you have to wonder, you know, what, what do you really expect? I mean, I'm, so I'm disappointed by the way this anger has been funneled, but I think the anger is there, and you have to sort of criticize both traditional Democrats and Republicans for not being better at getting people engaged in a more constructive way. Now, the quality of our elected officials and not being able to get together, to me, is wrong. I'm, I, uh, you know, I'm very proud of working with Republicans, including in this Congress, to get things done. You know, I've uh, been able to partner with Republicans to get the, the, the Chesapeake Bay Bill moving. I've been partnering with Republicans on uh, cleaning up the mountaintop removal of, of coal. Uh, so I, you've got to get Democrats and Republicans working together, and uh, too many are not. Well, I think the Republican Party has to sort of find itself right now. They don't know where they are. I mean, we, a lot of us remember the Republican Party in Maryland and its history of, of, uh, of McKeldin and Matthias, and we're wondering how they would feel today if they look back and saw what's happening to the Republican Party nationally. So the Republican Party has to sort of find itself in just about every race where they tried to recruit candidates who were mainstream Republicans that, that candidate is lost. I mean, they lost in Kentucky, they lost in Delaware, they, they lost in uh, Nevada, they lost in uh, um, uh, Colorado, just about every state where, they, where the party has tried to bring in a mainstream Republican, they've been unsuccessful. Now, primary elections are a very small number of participants. So if you're angry and motivated, you're going to turn out. If you are saying, gee, I wish you would have done a better job, and I'm not happy where we are today, you sit home on Election Day, particularly when it's a primary. So I think it's not so much that the majority of Republicans support where the Republican Party is heading. 
I think the energy level is with the Tea Party movement rather than with the mainstream. So this is causing the Republican Party to go to the right. Now, we've had the same problem in the Democratic Party. We've gone to the left too far. The public's in the middle. That shows up on election day. You're more likely to get a more centrist vote on election day. And to me, the challenge will be who comes out to vote. You said whether we'll win in Delaware, whether we'll win in Colorado or, uh, or Nevada uh, or Kentucky. I think it will depend on who is energized. I don't see the Democratic base energized right now. I don't really see what's going to happen yet with the Republicans. I'm not willing to concede that they're going to have a large turnout. But the primary is any indication there is a real problem in this country with voters on both sides, including independents. Who will come out to vote? Um, and uh, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to explain to people this is an important election. I think every election is important, but this election is very important. And I hope people will participate. But uh, to me, the Republican Party is going to have to sort of find what they stand for. And I don't believe the Republican Party in Maryland uh, will, will move what's happening nationally. Uh, Bob Ehrlich got a very healthy vote in his primary. I think that's a good sign for the Republican Party in Maryland. Uh, so we expect Maryland to be sort of bucking the national trends. You have a judicial branch? Yeah. I don't want a judge to be popular. I, I, hope I, didn't, I hope I explained that. The judges should not be popular. They should do what's right. But well, the, that's, not, that's one of the reasons they have a lifetime appointment. They're not answerable. Uh, I, when I served in the House of Representatives, I served in the People's House. I'm supposed to be very responsive to public opinion, but not a justice. But a justice should be, it's got to be loyal to the Constitution. And the incredible document that our founders came forward with, as Justice Marshall said, it wasn't perfect, but it gave us the framework to resolve our problems, except for one, civil war. Other than that, we've been able to resolve our conflicts through our constitutional democracy. And we, we, so it's up to the court to bring that balance. And I don't think they're there right now. I mean, I, th I, don't, I, I think they are just missing an opportunity to advance the Constitution to meet current needs. Well, I want to see the court err on the side of the individual. Government doesn't need their help. Corporations don't need their help. It's the individual that needs their help. That's where I want to see them on the side of, uh, of the protections that are in our Constitution. And that's what I see missing today uh, in uh, where they're heading. Will they change? I, you know, we go through these cycles. I have confidence that we'll, we'll make the adjustments that are necessary. You mean from the protesters or from... Well, I, I don't think there's a lot of, I think the energy right now is anger that's out there. And it's striking more at either throw, throw 
the incumbents out, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Republicans haven't fared any better than Democrats. In fact, in primaries, Republicans are faring a lot worse than Democrats. So it's sort of throw out whoever's there now. Where I would like to see the energy channeled is to deal with the serious problems we have here. We are too partisan. We haven't dealt with energy. We haven't dealt with expanding our economy. We haven't dealt with international competitiveness. We haven't dealt with schools. We have, there's a lot of things we haven't dealt with that are going to affect your future. So I, I want, uh, the, particularly looking at the federal government, I want them concentrating on how we're going to be able to compete internationally in the future. I want them to deal with our deficit. The deficit is a structural deficit today. We haven't had this in the past. I don't want them spending a lot of time blaming how we got here. I want them to fix the problem. So, I mean, that's to me how you face, you get away from the partisan arguments. I know you can't do that six weeks before an election. That's ask, I'm not even asking them now. I'm just asking, look, we've been doing this, though, for the last year and a half. Just, I mean, we've been arguing politics. So now that you get into the political season, we have to overcome whatever happens in November. But once the election results are known, I want that energy focused on dealing with our schools, dealing with our deficits, dealing with international competition, the problems that America needs, and also, by the way, international opportunities. We have a lot of, I mean, I think President Obama deserves a lot of credit. We have some real opportunities to bring this world closer together. We've got to take advantage of that also. By the way, it includes ratifying the START Treaty, which I hope will get done before the end of this year. Yes. Well, I don't force loyalty. I don't force diversity on the courts. I would be opposed to forcing. That, to me, that's quotas. I'm against quotas in any form. You know, it's very interesting. I'll give, just give you one example. I, I remember reading the details, and you rarely get this, of um, a Supreme Court deliberation when I think it was O'Connor was the only uh, woman that was on the court. And they were talking about uh, um, an abuse situation. And she was shocked the way males were talking about it, that they just didn't understand that the case was, why didn't the woman come forward and do something else, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a criminal case. I just think empathy is important, not to reach a decision, but your background is important for understanding what's going on in our community. And when you have all males on the court, you lose something. When you have all people who come from privileged backgrounds, you lose something. When you have all Catholics, you lose something. So I think it's important to have a court that represents this country and understands this country and understands what Americans are going through. It was Elena Kagan who said in her opening statement, and this really got to me, she, she wants to give a fair shake to every American. Well, how do you give a fair shake to every American if you don't know who they are? And, you know, if you're Hispanic and you look at a court that doesn't have any Hispanics on it, you start to wonder whether they really understand what I went through to get here. I really understand the problems I have in my life. And it's, it's somewhat the credibility of our government 
You respect a government that you believe in. But if you think your government's not giving you a fair shake, you don't, you don't have the, the, the type of support that you need. So I'm very much in favor of inclusion. Again, I remember growing up when we didn't have those opportunities in our community. We didn't. Certain things I couldn't do because of my religion. I remember that. I don't want to go back to those days. And we're not going to go back to those days. And we're not going to have quotas in this country. But I certainly want to make sure, whether it's the Senate of the United States or the Supreme Court or Goucher, that you have a diversified environment because that's how you're going to succeed. Thanks for the question. Right. Yes. Well, I, I think Judge, I, I did, I, I did, uh, I did follow it at the time. Justice Souter's comments, and of course, Justice Souter was the Supreme Court justice, which Justice Sotomayor replaced on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, I'm not sure if you look at the rulings of the four conservative, so-called conservative justices, it's a bad term. I wish I could figure out a different way to call them, but the four justices who generally side on the, you call it strict constructionist. I don't see them consistent on that. It'd be one thing, I mean, you get to original intent. We got into a big debate about that during the confirmation hearings, original intent and strict construction. You can't, it, you, Life has changed over the last 200 and some years. You can't, it doesn't fit. So you, you've got to put some subjectivity into this. And I, I think that the Roberts Court has used that sub subjectivity. And in every case, it has been to restrict the protections of the masses against the powerful. And that's what concerns me about how they've used that interpretation. If they used it consistently, for example, perhaps restrict greatly the power of the president. They haven't done that. They haven't done that. Or they used it to, to restrict uh, what we could do in, uh, in Congress and some of the things that we've done to protect special interests. They haven't done that. It's all been in, concentrated in this one area. Now, we give the court a little bit of credit. They have on detainee rights. They have. And these have been pretty lopsided decisions. These have not been close. But on detainee rights, they have, in my view, done the right thing. It's not popular, but they have done the right thing to say detainees have certain rights in our criminal justice system, even though they're not Americans. So in that one area, I think they have done a service to our country.
Well, I think Citizen United is probably the, Bush v. Gore. I, that's I don't want to talk about that one too much, but you know, <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, that's a really tough one. That the court decided to get involved in politics. There's no other way you you can say that. Citizen United is the one I find the most troublesome. I really find that the most troublesome because I don't know how you justify that decision any way you look at it. I just don't know how you can. If you follow legal pr legal principles, you would have taken a narrow interpretation of the case and moved on. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. They specifically wanted this case, and they wanted this case for a specific ruling. That's why they decided to hear it, and that's why the decision was not a surprise to any of us. We were extremely worried about this case, and it clearly was a particular view that they wanted to move forward with. And there was no legal precedent at all for the manner in which that case was decided or its holding. So that's the one I think which is the most problematic. Now, I don't think they're going to do this routinely. I think uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is, has a political sensitivity as to how many issues he can take up and how many can be blatant in regards to what he's trying to do. So I think he's more um, strategic than just trying to automatically change. Now, if he had two more justices or one more justice on his side, then I don't know what would happen. Uh, right now, he has to get you know Justice Kennedy's vote of a uh, decision on his side. Justice Kennedy is, is a person you just don't know where he's going to be on any given case. So um, I, I just I am very troubled by the Citizen United case. I really don't understand how that case. Uh, falls into anything other than a, a deliberate effort by the court to legislate. Well, we got to get uh, Judge Holland uh, confirmed. <laughs> so, so we we, we have a. a, a uh, yes. Uh, first, let me give you where we are on judicial confirmations. This is the worst in America's history on confirmation of federal judges. There's been more delay than ever before in the history of America, and again, it's been the 60-vote threshold that's denied us the ability to bring up federal judges for confirmation. Most of the federal judges that are waiting confirmation are like uh, Ellen. That is, they came out of our committee with no opposition. They're not controversial. It's just a matter of getting them up for a vote. Traditionally, they would come up through unanimous consent about a week or two after the committee acted, and they would be sworn in to take their oath of office. Uh, the Republican strategy is to deny President Obama that opportunity. They're hoping that most of these judges will not get confirmed by the end of the year, and then if the Senate changes, they're hopeful that they'll be able to block some of these appointments forever. Uh, so that's their goal, is to block uh, appointments made by the president, not on merit, just because they're made by a Democratic president. Uh, in fairness to the Republicans, President Obama has perhaps been the slowest president in, in at least the last 30 years on filling vacancies. He's been very slow, very methodical, too slow in the filling of, of federal vacancies. So there's blame on both sides, uh, but it's inexcusable that we don't take these judges up. I am going to be offering 
an amendment to the Senate rules that will uh, require us uh, uh, routinely to vote on judicial appointments. Now, we'll still be able to hold deal with Supreme Court justices the way we do today. I don't think there's been any delay in dealing with Supreme Court justices. And there will be an opportunity on a legitimate concern on a federal judge to be able to hold that judge up. But you'll have to do it openly, identify yourself, and then get into the debate in the 60-vote threshold. Right now, you kill the judges by just not letting them come up for a vote. You don't even get the 60 votes. So we're going to try to change the rules. Uh, just for, for your information on Judge Hollander and Judge Bedard, uh, there's still about a half a dozen judges ahead of them on uh, when they came out of our committee. So it's going to be a, a struggle to get them approved before the end of the year. But our objective is to get them confirmed before the end of the year. The start, of course, is the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty with the Soviet, with Russia and the United States. Uh, we had a start one that expired at the end of last year. And since the end of last year, we have not had our inspectors inspecting the nuclear stockpile within Russia. So there have been no verification as to, and there's no requirements, but there's no verification. Uh, this treaty uh, reduces the number of not only of nuclear warheads, but delivery uh, uh, weapons that the Russia and the United States can maintain and reduces it and has uh, uh, an inspection and verification system so that we can inspect and verify to make sure they're living up to what they say and we're living up to what we say. The treaty can be, uh, you can get out of the treaty at any time. So this is a treaty that binds us, but we have the right to withdraw, and they have the right to withdraw. It's the same as they did with Start One. The treaty is critically important for this, for this universe. Uh, it's not only important for Russia and the United States to say that we can continue to do what we've been doing in the past on arms reduction, but it provides leadership internationally. If Russia and the United States that maintain about 90% of the world's nuclear stockpile can't agree on a, on a modest reduction, how are we going to deal with non-proliferation and reduction of the, of the nuclear stockpiles? So it's, it's very important. Just a little bit of history. Every previous arms agreement with Russia got over at least 95 senators voting in favor of it. This is ex almost identical to what we did before, a little bit stronger from the U.S. perspective. Every one of them has gotten at least 95 senators supporting it. We had uh, a 14 to 4 vote in our committee, which is a good sign. Uh, four is not good to see four Republicans voting against it. I think right now you need 67 votes to ratify a treaty, so you don't have a lot of room for error here. Uh, we hope to bring this up shortly after the elections. I don't think we Republicans want us to vote on it before November. They don't want to give President Obama any victories. Uh, so this would be perceived as a victory for the Democrats, and they will not do that. And we can argue this back and forth. Uh, we're not going to challenge them on it because it's just too important of an issue. And therefore, we're going to hold it off. I believe, I, last time I talked to Senator Kerry, we'll hold it off until after the November elections, but we have to ratify this treaty before the end of the year. We must. And um, 
I am convinced this will come up in lame duck. Even if we don't have the votes, I don't think the Democrats are going to, I hope we don't uh, let this die just by inaction. It will uh, come up after the elections. It's going to be close, but I think we will get the votes uh, to ratify this treaty. It shouldn't have been as hard as it was. It just was incredibly difficult to, to get this moving. Yeah, uh, Sandy's very familiar with the Senate ethics rules. This just, just made the limit, so I, I can accept this. With